You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Introduction to the Sacred Liturgy, part of the Basics of Catholicism program offered by the International Catholic University. My name is Father Neil J. Roy. I am a priest of the Diocese of Peterborough, Ontario in Canada, and I teach liturgy and sacramental theology at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Before we begin our lecture, let us place ourselves in the presence of God and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, take possession of our hearts, and enkindle in us the fire of thy divine love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the minds of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a sense of the true and a taste for the good, and always to find our consolation and our joy in him. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Our Lady Mother of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this first lecture, we're going to consider some definitions of liturgy, the terminology surrounding liturgy, the object of liturgy, and the celebrant of liturgy. Let us begin with the definition of liturgy. The word derives from the Greek word liturgia, which means public work. And the liturgy is the public, official worship of God by the Church. This kind of official prayer of the Church differs from the Church's many forms of devotion, whether practiced by individuals or by groups. Such devotions include the Rosary, the Stations of the Cross, various novenas, litanies, and prayers, as well as Lectio Divina, or meditation upon the sacred scriptures, or other kinds of spiritual reading and meditation. All of these are worthy and commendable exercises of prayer and piety, but they do not constitute what the Church calls liturgy. Liturgy has a more objective nature than devotional prayer or pious practices undertaken by groups or individuals. Other suitable definitions of the official worship of God by the Church include divine service, worship that sanctifies, or sanctifying worship, the celebration of Christ's passion, death, resurrection, and glorification at the right hand of God the Father, the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ, the high priest and sole mediator of the new covenant. We will return to these definitions in due course. For the time being, let us keep in mind the etymology of the term liturgy. Liturgia is a Greek word meaning a public work or a work done on behalf of the people or for their benefit. For the ancient Greeks, who worshipped many gods, liturgy involved sacrifices of incense, cereal offerings, holocausts and burnt offerings of animals and birds, sometimes even humans. Seven men, young men, and seven virgins were offered to the Minotaur in order to placate the angry deities of ancient Greece. These sacrifices aimed at pacifying the gods so that they might bless and prosper mortals. For the pagan Greeks, liturgy also entailed the public performance of the myths or the historical events of great significance to the people. A vivid mixing, 
even a dramatization of the ancient religion of the Greek state. Dramaturgists like Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides undertook to present such dramatic performances for the common good. Again, the aim was to please the gods and to prosper the welfare of the city-state. The Hebrews, the people of Israel, who emerged as a monotheistic people, celebrated their covenant with the one true God in a liturgical way. At first, they worshipped the Lord on various altars in a variety of places where God had intervened with them or on their behalf. In due course, however, between 1250 and 1225 BC, God called them out of the slavery they suffered in Egypt into a land promised long beforehand, around 1900 BC, to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew race. God renewed his covenant with Moses and dwelt in the midst of Israel, first in a tent over the Ark of the Covenant, and later in the temple erected by Solomon between 975 and 935. In the desert and later in the temple, the people of God offered liturgy, official worship, as God himself directed. The aim of this liturgy was to recall the signs and wonders worked by God on their behalf and to relive the redemption of the people of Israel from slavery. The point to keep in mind here is that Israel offered God worship on his terms. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he gave a command that Moses should tell the king of Egypt that he was to release the people of Israel, that they might go out into the desert and for three days offer sacrifice to the living God. With the subsequent destruction of the temple under the various invading kings and ultimately under the Romans in AD 70, the people of Israel celebrated domestic liturgy, liturgy in their homes. An Arabic word, zikaron, describes the recollection, the memorial, or the commemoration that makes present for the Hebrew people a past event. Rather than merely re recalling a past event, the people of Israel relive the event through liturgy. This is how Christians understand the liturgical celebration of Christ's Paschal mystery. Through the sacred liturgy, the Church participates in the passion, death, resurrection, and glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by this mystery that God is glorified and that his people are sanctified. So although there are parallels between the Greek liturgy and Christian liturgy, between the Hebrew liturgy and Christian liturgy, the liturgy of the Christian church is quite distinct. It is not derived from either paganism or the Jewish faith. It derives ultimately from the covenant which God sealed with his people by means of Christ. It was on the cross that Christ removed, took away the sins of the world. And the liturgy offered by the Christian church is a participation in that redemptive act. Let us consider the object of the liturgy. 
The object and primary focus of the sacred liturgy is none other than God himself. If we were to go back to our basic penny catechism, we would find there the definition of God. He is the supreme being who alone exists of himself and who can do all things. That God exists is a truth capable of discovery by the light of natural reason alone. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, for example, all concluded that there is a God. They saw him as a first cause, a first mover, a necessary being upon whom all contingent beings depend for their existence. They find in him a perfect being against which all levels of perfection can be measured. They find in God an intellect behind the order in, in the created universe. St. Thomas Aquinas summarizes the five ways of demonstrating that there is a God. We contingent beings owe our very existence and our essence to God himself. Everything that we are, everything that we have, comes to us as God's gift. That God exists can be discovered by reason alone. But the question as to who God is requires something greater than, something superior to the light of human reason alone. The question of God's own identity requires self-disclosure on God's part. This we call divine revelation, and we recognize two channels of this revelation or self-disclosure of God. The first is tradition, and the second is scripture. And it is through tradition that we have come to recognize the books that comprise the Bible, which contains what the church has come to recognize as the revealed word of God. It is the church who recognizes which writings are admitted to the sacred canon or privileged collection of books written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the church who determines which books are not canonical, which are not to be admitted to the official collection. God has revealed himself as a trinity, a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us consider what that really means. When God, who is the supreme being, uh, uh, who alone exists of himself and who can do all things, when God reflects on himself, he generates a perfect self-image, an image that must be infinite and perfect, co-equal, co-eternal with him. Otherwise, he would not be God. And we call that self-expression of God, we call that uh, self-image uh, of God, the Logos, the Word. It is his perfect self-expression. Because God is God, he generates that perfect self-image. And because it is perfect and infinite in all perfections, that self-image of God, which we call the Word, is lovable, infinitely lovable. And so God loves his perfect self-image and breathes that love in the form of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit comes from the Latin word spiro, spirare. It means to breathe. And so God breathes his love upon the Son, the Logos, the Word, 
And the Logos in turn breathes that love back to the Father. That love is so perfect, it is the third person of the Holy Trinity. We call that third person, that love between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. So God generates his perfect self-image. He does not create it. It is generated. And this is why we say in the Creed that we believe in the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And we profess our faith as Christians in the Holy Spirit, the love which the Father breathes forth on the Son and which the Son breathes forth on the Father. This love is spilled forth into all creation. God sends his Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life. And we find even at the dawn of creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It is the nature of God to, it is the nature of love to go out of itself in donation, self-donation. God loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and together they pour forth their spirit upon all creation. It was that spirit which brings into being all things visible and invisible. All things that are created have the origin in God's love. From the heart of the Father to the heart of the Son, through the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit, all creation is brought forth. God has revealed himself to us as a trinity of persons, a communion of love, and he invites all creation to participate in this love. When God created man and woman, he created them in friendship, out of love. But owing to selfishness and temptation, our first parents fell from grace. They fell out of friendship with God they relinquished the divine life which he had poured forth into them. Let us recall the words of Genesis. God created man from the mud of the earth, from the slime of the earth, and he breathed into man his breath, his spirit, and he brought man to life. He created Eve, the first woman, from the side of man, and he set them to, in the garden to tend the garden and uh, to collect its fruits. The man was called Adam, the woman was called Eve. God created man in his image and likeness. The image of God we possess in terms of intellect, memory, and will. In this we resemble the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sends his truth through the word. He sends his love in the spirit. And we, created in the image of God, can choose life or death. We can choose love. We can choose hate. These are our options. We exercise our will just as the Trinity exercises its will and brings life to being. Our first parents, though, fell from God's grace. They fell from favor with the Lord by choosing to disobey his commands and to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This fall 
relinquished the likeness to God, which is holiness. And all of redemption, all of our Christian life, is a pursuit of recovering that holiness, recovering that which was lost. We still retain the image of God in our intellect, our memory, and our will. And in the human race, we resemble the Holy Trinity as father and mother unite in love and together bring forth a third person, a child. This is what we call the family. And the family resembles, it bears the image of the Holy Trinity. But in our sin, we lose holiness. We lose grace, that friendship with God that is necessary for seeing God in the face. Our first parents were expelled from the garden and they required a redeemer. This redeemer came in the person of the word. And when he came among us as a man, he was given the name Jesus, a name which means he who frees us from our sin. Having lived his life for 33 years here on earth, Jesus, the incarnate word of the Father, gave his life for us on the cross. Before he died, however, he left a church. He left a communion of faithful who would carry on the work of his redemption once he left, once he departed from this world to return to his Father in glory. And he promised that he would be with his church until the end of time. In order to animate this church, he sent the Holy Spirit. In fact, we find on the day of the resurrection, our Lord breathed into the disciples or breathed upon the disciples his Holy Spirit to forgive their sins and to enable them to forgive the sins of others. He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit after he rose from the, after he ascended to the right hand of his Father. He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. The apostles were to return to the upper room where they had celebrated the Last Supper, and there the Holy Spirit would come upon them, making them witnesses of Jesus Christ and bringing his salvation into the ends of the world, bringing the good news to all creation. The church has been entrusted with the celebration of the sacred liturgy. The liturgy is really the church at prayer, and it is Christ who offers the one sacrifice that brings redemption to the human race. Christ is the perfect high priest and the sole mediator of the covenant between God and man. By founding the church, Christ instituted the means whereby this sacrifice may be celebrated and renewed in every generation for the glory of God and for the salvation of his people. Christ is at work in the sacred liturgy, offering his Father the life-giving redemption which he won for his people, his bride, the mystical body. We call the Holy Spirit the soul of the mystical body. For the Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. It is the Spirit who animates Christ's mystical body. The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, issued by the Second Vatican Council, expresses this truth in the following terms. To accomplish so great a work, 
Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross. But especially he is present in the Eucharistic species. By his power, he is present in the sacraments so that when anybody baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. He is present in his word since he is himself the one who speaks when the Holy Scriptures are read in the church. Lastly, he is present when the church prays and sings, for he has promised, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the liturgy is constituted of three basic components. There is the Holy Eucharist, which is the blessed sacrament, the sacrament around which all the others are oriented and to which they are ordained. There are the sacraments themselves, and then there is the divine office or liturgy of the hours. These three elements constitute the liturgy of the church. She prays in these ways officially, and she offers public cultus to God. In the Eucharist, in the other sacraments, in the liturgy of the hours or divine office, Christ prays to his heavenly Father through the church. The mystical body of Christ, head and members, offers God the worship that is his due. And in so doing, the church herself is made holy. For it is the Holy Spirit, the soul of the mystical body of Christ, that keeps the church alive, that maintains her in her earthly pilgrimage toward heaven. Sacrosanctum Concilium, section 7, entertain, uh, explains the role of the church in offering God liturgical worship. Christ, indeed, the Constitution teaches, always associates the church with himself in this great work in which God is perfectly glorified and men are sanctified. The church is his beloved bride who calls to her Lord and through him offers worship to the Father. In other words, the church prays to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And this is the usual way that the collects in the sacred liturgy are phrased. The prayers usually address God the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. This is why the Council Fathers taught that the liturgy, then, is rightly seen as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. It involves the presentation of man's sanctification under the guise of signs perceptible by the senses and its accomplishment in ways appropriate to each of these signs. In it, full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members. Again, that is coming from Sacrosanctum Concilium, section 7. I think it's important to stress that the liturgy is the action of Christ and his church, and therefore it is not the exercise of personal piety, it is not the prerogative of individual members of the church to change the liturgy according to their own designs, their own devices and desires. The liturgy is something that has been received from us. 
thanks to the apostles who passed on the message of Jesus Christ, who passed on the ways of worship, who passed on the truths of the gospel. We have received the liturgy as the official prayer of the church, and it is incumbent upon us to celebrate these sacred mysteries worthily and well, in fidelity with the teaching of the church. Because the liturgy is the official prayer of the church, it is incumbent for all the faithful to adhere to the principles of the liturgy and to receive the liturgy as it has been transmitted to us from the apostles. Now, there are many various rites in the church. There are various uh, communities of the faithful who have passed on the liturgy as they have received it. And so it has come to us in the Western Church, in the Western world, influenced by various popes and doctors, fathers of the Church, influenced likewise by uh, theologians and the people in liturgy who have formed it, bishops and great pastors. It is to be received in fidelity and it is to be celebrated as the Church's official prayer. So, as the Second Vatican Council admonishes, no individual not even a priest can change the sacred liturgy, can take anything away from it or add to it. Otherwise, the liturgy, the integrity of the liturgy would be impaired. Let us consider the three elements of the sacred liturgy, the Eucharist itself, which we call the sacrifice of the mass, the other sacraments, and the liturgy of the hours. I mentioned earlier that all the sacraments are ordered towards the Holy Eucharist. It is the source and the summit of the church's life. It is uh, that which gives the church her vitality and it is the goal towards all the other sacraments. In baptism, a person is admitted to the worshiping community that is the church. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the sins of the baptized are forgiven and they are admitted to the worshiping community. They now constitute part of the priestly people of God, the people whom he has formed, called into being, and ordered to worship him. It is by baptism that we can participate in the sacraments. It is the gateway to the sacramental system. And liturgy and sacramental theology go together uh, integrally because both involve perceptible signs of inward grace that lead us to the sharing in the life of the Holy Trinity. Baptism admits a person to the worshiping community, the priestly community that is the church. Baptism constitutes the first of the sacraments of initiation. The other two are confirmation and Holy Eucharist. Then, after the Eucharist, we have the sacraments of healing to restore the life of grace if that has been lost since baptism. Confirmation makes us witnesses of Christ. The Holy Eucharist is our nourishment at the divine banquet prepared for us by Christ, where he nourishes us at the altar with his body and blood, soul and divinity under the sacramental appearances of bread and wine. 
If we have lost sacramental grace, we must have recourse to the sacrament of penance, which restores us to the life of God and restores us by reconciliation to life in the church. For those who are experiencing illness, those who are preparing for death, they call upon the priests of the church for the anointing of the sick, which strengthens them and brings healing. It enables them to receive Holy Communion. And when that is given for the last time, it is called viaticum, food for the journey, the journey toward the new and eternal Jerusalem. These are the sacraments of healing, and there are sacraments of church life, namely holy orders, by which the priesthood continues to offer worship to God in the church, and the sacrament of matrimony, whereby couples uh, bring into the world new members of Christ's faithful, new members of the kingdom of God. This, the dogmatic constitution on the church issued by the Second Vatican Council summarizes the role of the sacraments very beautifully. It states in section 11, the sacred nature and organic structure of the priestly community is brought into operation through the sacraments and the exercise of virtues incorporated into the church by baptism. The faithful are appointed by their baptismal character to Christian religious worship. Reborn as sons and daughters of God, they must profess before men the faith that they have received from God through the church. By the sacrament of confirmation, they are more perfectly bound to the church and are endowed with the special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread the faith by word and deed. Taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, the source and summit of the Christian life, they offer the divine victim to God and themselves along with it. And so it is that both in the offering and in Holy Communion, each in his own way, though not of course indiscriminately, has his own part to play in the liturgical action. Then strengthened by the body of Christ in the Eucharistic Communion, they manifest in a concrete way that unity of the people of God, which this holy sacrament aptly signifies and admirably realizes. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offenses committed against him and are at the same time reconciled with the church, which, uh, with which they have wounded by their sins and which by charity, by example, and by prayer labors for their conversion. By the sacrament of anointing of the sick and the prayer of the priests, the whole church commends those who are ill to the suffering and glorified God, that he may raise them up and save them. And indeed, she exhorts them to contribute to the good of the people of God by freely uniting themselves to the passion and death of Christ. Those among the faithful who have received holy orders are appointed to nourish the church with the word and grace of God in the name of Christ. Finally, in virtue of the sacrament of matrimony by which they signify and share the mystery of the unity and faithful love between Christ and the church, Christian married couples help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in the rearing of their children. Hence, by reason of their state in life and of their position, they have their own gifts in the people of God. 
From the marriage of Christians, there comes the family in which new citizens of human society are born, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit in baptism, those who are made children of God so that the people of God may be perpetuated throughout the centuries. In what might be regarded as the domestic church, the parents, by word and example, are the first heralds of the faith with regard to their children. We've now considered the sacraments, and we mention as well at the conclusion the singing of the psalms in the church. The, psalm, the book of Psalms, the Psalter, is the prayer book of the church, and it is through the psalms, through the hymns, the canticles, the antiphons, and the collects in the divine office that the church continues to gather as the body of Christ and to offer sacrifice before God, pleasing in his sight. Thank you for your attention to these words on the origins of the liturgy, the definition and terminology of the liturgy, the object of the liturgy, and its celebrant. In our next lecture, we're going to consider the nature of the liturgy, its importance, and uh, its aims. Thank you for your time. Welcome to our second lecture on the Sacred Liturgy, offered as part of the Basics of Catholicism course. I'm Father Neil J. Roy, a priest of the Diocese of Peterborough, Ontario in Canada, and I teach liturgy and sacramental theology at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Let us begin with a prayer invoking the aid of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, take possession of our hearts, and enkindle in us the fire of thy divine love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the minds of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a sense of the true and a taste for the good, and always to find our consolation and our joy in him. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Our Lady Mother of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, in this lecture, we're going to discuss the nature of the sacred liturgy, its aim and its importance for the life of the Church. In this first part, I'd like to discuss the nature of the sacred liturgy and its relationship uh, with sacred doctrine. In our first lesson on the sacred liturgy, we examined the definition of liturgy, its object, God, and its celebrant, the whole Christ, that is, the mystical body in head and members. It is worth considering at the beginning of our second lesson the nature of liturgy so that we may grasp the more fully its role as the source and summit of the church's life and mission. In the prayers, readings, and chants of the sacred liturgy, the church expresses her belief in what God has revealed about himself, what we call the depositum fidei, the deposit of the faith, or the doctrinal treasury of our holy religion. All that the Church has received from her Lord and spouse, all that she holds clear and proposes to us for our belief, finds eloquent expression in her official prayer. The liturgy not only reflects and affirms the Church's faith in these mysteries, it integrates them into the annual, weekly, and even daily rounds of her public worship of God. Let us consider the nature of the sacred liturgy, the prayer of Christ, and the Church. The sacred liturgy, as mentioned in the first lecture, constitutes the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ, 
the high priest and sole mediator of the new covenant. This priestly office is carried out by the whole Christ, that is, by the entire mystical body of Jesus Christ, head and members, together. In the first papal encyclical on the sacred liturgy, issued on the 20th of November, 1947, under the title Mediator Dei, the mediator between God and man, Pope Pius XII, who reigned from 1939 to 1958, highlighted the wisdom of Christ in establishing a system of sacramental worship by which, as he says, the priestly life begun with the supplication and sacrifice of his mortal body should continue without intermission down the ages in his mystical body, which is the church. In obedience, therefore, to her founder's behest, the church prolongs the priestly mission of Jesus Christ, mainly by means of the sacred liturgy. This unambiguous understanding of the priestly and sacramental nature of the sacred liturgy resonates clearly in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, held at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican between 1962 and 1965. The Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, known by its incipit or first words, Sacrosanctum Concilium, in fact echoes the very words of Pope Pius XII, which I just quoted. The liturgy then, concludes the Constitution, is rightly seen as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. It involves the presentation of man's sanctification under the guise of signs perceptible by the senses and its accomplishment in ways appropriate to each of these signs. In it, full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members. Jesus Christ wills that his church participate intimately in the exercise of his high priestly office. According to Sacrosanctum Concilium, Christ always associates the church with himself in this great work in which God is perfectly glorified and men and women are sanctified. The church is his beloved bride who calls to her Lord and through him offers worship to the Eternal Father. When the church prays, therefore, it is Christ praying in unison with his body and bride, the church. From this, concludes the council, it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. We will return to this quotation uh, later on in the lecture. It is Christ who associates himself with himself all the members of the mystical body, his pilgrim people, his church, in this privileged public prayer, which constitutes the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed, and it is also the fount from which all her power flows. Foremost among the members of Christ's mystical body ranks the Blessed Virgin Mary. At each stage of his saving mission, Christ associated Mary with himself and with the work of redemption. Without in any way diminishing Christ's role as Redeemer, Mary played and continues to play a unique role in the economy of salvation. Hence, her place of high honor in the Church's liturgical prayer. We'll consider now the role of the liturgy in the development of doctrine. 
because at this point it is helpful to recall the connection between the church's deposit of faith and her liturgical worship. In that first encyclical on the sacred liturgy, Mediator Dei, which I quoted earlier, Pope Pius XII clarified this relationship by correcting a popular misreading of the lay theologian and papal secretary, St. Prosper of Aquitaine, who lived somewhere between 390 and 455. He was a friend of St. Hilary of Poitiers. Prosper's dictum, Legem credendi, lex statuat supplicandi, let the rule for prayer determine the rule of belief, had been exposed to potential misinterpretation by the more pithy axiom, lex orandi, lex credendi, the rule of faith, the rule of belief, which in some circles had been taken to suggest that it is the prayer of the church which determines the church's faith. Pius XII confronted this fallacy in unambiguous terms. I quote, we refer to the error and fallacious reasoning of those who have claimed that the sacred liturgy is a kind of proving ground for the truths to be held of faith, meaning by this that the church is obliged to declare such a doctrine sound when it is found to have produced fruits of piety and sanctity through the sacred rites of liturgy, and to reject it otherwise. Hence the epigram, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law for prayer is the law for faith. But this, Pius XII declares, is not what the Church teaches and enjoins. The entire liturgy has the Catholic faith for its content, inasmuch as it bears witness to the faith of the Church. Hence the well-known and venerable maxim, legem credendi lex statuat supplicandi, let the rule for prayer determine the rule of belief. The sacred liturgy, consequently, does not decide or determine independently and of itself what is of Catholic faith. More properly, since the liturgy is also a profession of eternal truths and subject as such to the supreme teaching authority of the Church, it can supply proofs and testimony quite clearly of no little value towards the determination of a particular point of Christian doctrine. But if one desires to differentiate and describe the relationship between faith and the sacred liturgy in absolute terms, it is perfectly correct to say, lex credendi, legem statuat supplicandi, let the rule of belief determine the rule of prayer. Liturgical celebration, then, must cohere with and bear witness to the Church's faith. It is true, nonetheless, that the sacred liturgy has exercised considerable influence on the clarification of points of doctrine. This is particularly evident, for example, in the case of the Church's teachings about Mary. The feasts of the Immaculate Conception and of the Assumption, for example, were celebrated in the liturgy long before they were solemnly defined and decreed, respectively, in 1854 and 1950. Both Pope Pius IX in the bull Inefabilis Deus, issued on the 8th of December, 1854, and Pope Pius XII in his Apostolic Constitution, Munificentissimus Deus, which he issued on the 1st of November, 1950, appealed to the liturgical tradition in framing their declarations. Because the sacred liturgy in this way stands as a privileged witness to the Depositum Fidei, it serves as a reliable touchstone of orthodoxy. Pope Pius XI, in establishing the Feast of Christ the King, 
by means of the encyclical Quas Primas, issued on the 11th of December 1925, stressed the power of the liturgy to impress upon the awareness of the faithful the truths of faith and to elicit from Christians signs of intense devotion to the divine mysteries. He writes in that encyclical, the church's teaching affects the mind primarily. Her feasts affect both mind and heart and have a salutary effect upon the whole of man's nature. Man is composed of body and soul, and he needs these external festivities so that the sacred rites, in all their beauty and variety, may stimulate him to drink more deeply of the fountain of God's teaching, that he may make it a part of himself and use it with profit for his spiritual life. Pope Pius XI then makes specific reference in the encyclical to the role played by the feasts of the saints and especially of the Mother of God in the building up of the Church. I quote, History, in fact, tells us that in the course of ages, these festivals have been instituted one after another according as the needs or the advantage of the people of Christ seemed to demand, as when they needed strength to face a common danger, when they were attacked by insidious heresies, when they needed to be urged to the pious consideration of some mystery of faith or of some divine blessing. Thus, in the earliest days of the Christian era, when the people of Christ were suffering cruel persecution, the cult of the martyrs was begun in order, says St. Augustine, that the feasts of the martyrs might incite men to martyrdom. The liturgical honors paid to confessors, virgins, and widows produced wonderful results in an increased zest for virtue, necessary even in times of peace. But more fruitful still were the feasts instituted in honor of the Blessed Virgin. As a result of these, men grew not only in their devotion to the Mother of God as an ever-present advocate, but also in their love of her as a mother bequeathed to them by their Redeemer. Not least among the blessings which have resulted from the public and legitimate honor paid to the Blessed Virgin and the saints is the perfect and perpetual immunity of the Church from error and heresy. We may well admire in this the admirable wisdom of the providence of God, who ever bringing good out of evil, has from time to time suffered the faith and piety of men to grow weak and allowed Catholic truth to be attacked by false doctrines, but always with the result that truth has afterwards shone out with greater splendor and that men's faith, aroused from its lethargy, has shown itself more vigorous than before. The Marian solemnities, feasts, and memorials celebrated by the Church express the profound relationship between the rule of faith and the Church's liturgical prayer. They reflect the Church's recognition of both scripture and tradition as the twofold channels of divine revelation. Here it is appropriate to mention the significance of the Church's liturgical seasons as they unfold for the Christian faithful the mysteries of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the course of the liturgical year, from the first Sunday of Advent to the Solemnity of Christ the King, observed now on the last Sunday of the liturgical calendar, the Church celebrates the mysteries of Jesus Christ. The liturgical year follows the rotation of two cycles, the proper of time, or the temporal cycle, and the proper of the saints, known as the sanctoral cycle. In the temporal cycle, 
The liturgy presents the life and mission of Christ, his coming in the incarnation, his passion, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and finally, the anticipation of his second coming as judge and king of all nations. The liturgy invites the church to consider likewise the involvement of the Blessed Virgin Mary in each of these mysteries celebrated during the temporal cycle. In the sanctoral cycle, the liturgy presents the paschal mystery of Christ as lived out in the lives and deaths of the saints. Here, a distinction is made between the adoration, which belongs to God alone, and veneration, or reverence, owed to the saints, as those who led lives of heroic holiness, who died in the odor of sanctity, and who now make intercession not only for us, members of the church militant, still struggling to overcome the allurements of the devil, the flesh, and the world, but who pray also for those souls now departed from this life, but who await purification before being admitted to the beatific vision by which they shall see God in the face. Whereas the church accords to God alone that form of worship known as latria or adoration, the church offers to the saints a form of honor and respect known as dulia or veneration. As mentioned earlier, the church worships the triune God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. She nevertheless honors those who distinguished themselves in this life by heroic service of God, either by martyrdom or by lives of heroic holiness. As creatures, the saints may not receive adoration or worship reserved to God. They are entitled to our veneration. The Blessed Virgin Mary, as the purest of God's creatures and the only saint preserved from all stain of sin since the first moment of her creation, is accorded by the Church a high form of honor superior to that offered to the saints, but clearly not the adoration due to God alone. God is divine. Mary is a human raised to sublime glory. God is the creator. Mary is his creature. Indeed, as the poet William Wordsworth put it, our tainted nature's solitary boast. The Church calls this exceptional respect offered to Mary hyperdulia, which means super-veneration, or honor of the highest distinction. Because Mary surpasses in holiness all the saints, she is rightly invoked as queen of all saints. This is why Pope Pius XII issued his apostolic constitution, declaring the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 1st of November, 1950. It was the Feast of All Saints, and it commemorated Mary's Queenship of All Saints. The solemnities, feasts, and commemorations of Mary on the calendar constantly remind us of Mary's faithful imitation of her Son and her union with Him now in heaven, where she prays to Him for the Church and for the entire human race. Let us consider now the cycles, the seasonal cycles of the liturgical year. Two seasonal cycles drive the, the church's liturgical year. The minor cycle of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany reflects on a smaller scale the major, indeed central cycle of Lent, Easter, Pentecost. Both cycles provide the model of Christian participation in the Lord's own mysteries interior preparation, celebration, public proclamation. This cycle corresponds to the sacramental process of 
catechesis and ascesis, the sacraments of initiation, apostolic public witness. Those only recently entering the church experience the process in the rites of Christian initiation in this way. For fully initiated Catholics, however, the liturgical seasons of Christmas and Easter afford on a semi-annual basis the model of spiritual and sacramental renewal, a period of asceticism, that is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, all fortified by a good sacramental confession, followed by the renewal of baptismal promises and the reception of Holy Communion. This, in turn, leads to prophetic witness by the grace of the Holy Spirit already bestowed in the Sacrament of Confirmation. Such a model applies to the process of sacramental renewal on a weekly or even daily basis. In any case, Mary, the mother and model of the Church, accompanies the faithful in the liturgy, guiding them to Christ in the Eucharist and urging obedience to his command to bring his gospel and the fruits of sacramental participation to others. Mary enjoys unique prominence in the liturgical cycle of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. In Advent, Our Lady's spirit of tranquil meditation prepares us for the coming of her Son. At Christmas, Mary gives birth to Christ in the mystery of the Incarnation. She brings him to birth likewise in every individual and community who welcomes her into the inn of their hearts and lives. At Epiphany, Mary presents Christ to us and exhorts us to faith and proclamation. Do whatever he tells you are Mary's last words recorded in sacred scripture on the occasion of the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. That was the culmination of the Epiphany or revelation of Christ. In this case, it was to the, the disciples who professed their faith in Christ's divinity. In the history of doctrinal development, it is worth noting that the Council of Ephesus, held in 431, which affirmed Mary's ancient liturgical and devotional title of Mother of God, preceded by a full 20 years the Council of Chalcedon, held in 451, which clarified that Jesus Christ is a single divine person with two natures. His divine nature he possessed from all eternity as the eternal Logos, or Word of the Father, and his human nature he took from the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit at the moment of the Incarnation. Even in matters of doctrine, then, Mary plays the dawn to Christ, the rising Son of Justice. Similarly, in the Lent-Easter-Pentecost cycle, Mary accompanies the Church on her pilgrimage through the desert of Lent. She offers Christ and herself to the Father on Calvary. She rejoices in the resurrection of her Son and Lord from the dead. Finally, she prays with and for the Church in anticipation of the Holy Spirit, who comes at Pentecost. In the cycle of ascetic preparation, celebration of the mysteries, and proclamation of the good news, Mary aids the Church by both her example and her intercession. Let us consider the cycle of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. The Advent season draws attention to the coming of Christ, actually to the comings of Christ. The liturgy recalls his first coming in humility, the humility of the Incarnation, so that the Church might prepare worthily and well for his second coming in glory 
as judge of the living and the dead. Hence, the church looks to Mary, who welcomed him in blessed hope. The character of the first part of Advent is distinctly eschatological. The liturgy, in its prayers, readings, and antiphons, anticipates Christ's coming as judge at the last day. Both the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception on the 8th of December and in the Americas, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe on the 12th of December, remind us of Mary's unique role in the history of salvation and in the life of the Church. Like the dawn before the sunrise, Mary prepares the world and the Church for the coming of Christ. Moreover, during the immediate preparation for the Nativity of the Lord, from the 17th to the 24th of December, Mary emerges in even more distinct relief through the scriptural lessons and especially in the preface to the Eucharistic prayer. Hence, as in the Roman canon, Mary appears in tandem with that other great figure of Advent, John the Baptist and the precursor of the Lord. The Virgin Mother bore him in her womb with love beyond all telling. John the Baptist was his herald and made him known when at last he came. A few notes are in order regarding the structure of Advent and its dynamics over the history of its development in the Roman Rite. Although Rome, adapted, although Rome adopted a six-week Advent in the second half of the sixth century, St. Gregory I reduced it to four weeks. The Ember Days called the faithful to fast and pray in anticipation of the ordinations that would take place on the Saturday following the third Sunday of Advent. The accounts of Mary's faithful reception of the Word incarnate at the Annunciation and her generosity in bringing that Word to others in the mystery of Mary's visitation to her kinswoman Elizabeth would have exhorted the ordinandi, those about to be ordained, to embrace with worthy joy their respective vocations. The season of Advent shares the quiet and prayerful expectation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Through the O Antiphons, recited during Vespers in conjunction with the Canticle of Mary, the Magnificat, and used as well at Mass for the Gospel Acclamation of the Day, the liturgy invokes Christ by various messianic and divine titles, Wisdom, Adonai, Root of Jesse, Key of David, Rising Sun, King of Nations, Emmanuel. A custom originating in the early Middle Ages and transmitted through religious orders and congregations assigned an additional O Antiphon, O Virgo Virginum, O Virgin of Virgins, to salute Mary. This title too implies the eschatological coming of Christ who makes fruitful the barren and who crowns with everlasting splendor the pure of heart. The season of Christmas encompasses several solemnities the highest rank of feast. The birth of Christ, the solemnity of the Holy Family on the Sunday within the octave of Christmas, the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, on the 1st of January, and the Epiphany. The manifestation of the Lord, or Epiphany of His divine glory, unfolds in three stages. First, to the Gentiles in the person of the Magi, who came to Bethlehem in search of the infant king. Second, to the people of Israel, gathered on the banks of the Jordan when Christ underwent the baptism of John, thereby fulfilling its role of preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah and putting an end to John's baptism. 
and third, to Christ's chosen disciples at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when, in response to his mother's observation that the wine had failed, Christ changed water into wine. It is worth mentioning that Mary figures in two stages or moments of Christ's epiphany, the manifestation of his divinity to the Gentiles and the revelation of his divine sonship to the disciples at Cana. Matthew records that the Magi, at the end of their journey from the east, entered the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Early frescoes in the catacombs of St. Priscilla on the Via Salaria depict Mary seated and, the, in the, and in the act of presenting the Christ child to three figures dressed in Persian caps and offering gifts to the infant. Mary does not appear in any of the scriptural accounts of Christ's manifestation to the house of Israel on the banks of the Jordan. Instead, John the Baptist exercises his role as the precursor and baptizer of the Lord. Mary prepared a home for Christ. John prepared the people of Israel for him. Now, on the threshold of Christ's public ministry, the Father and the Holy Spirit, manifesting themselves in a theophany, present Jesus to Israel as the beloved Son sent to redeem his people from their sins. Mary appears again at Cana, where Christ gives the first of his signs at her prompting. He thereby brings to a close the cycle of the three epiphanies, first to the Gentiles, then to the Israelites, and finally to the disciples. The appropriate response to the epiphany of divine glory is faith. The disciples believed in him. Christ then carries out his public ministry and brings his messianic mission to its culmination in the Paschal mystery. Let us now consider the Lent, Easter, and Pentecost cycle. The season of Lent prepares the church for the celebration of the Paschal mystery during the sacred triduum, or sacred three days, of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. In Lent, members of the church examine their conscience and engage in some form of asceticism in order to participate faithfully in the Eucharist. The catechumens are preparing for entry into the church. The connection of the Lenten season with Mary is not always obvious. The devotional exercise of praying the Stations of the Cross, like the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary, do offer the faithful some insight into the Passion of Christ from the perspective of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Our Lady figures in the 4th, 12th, and 13th stations. Jesus meets his sorrowful mother, Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus is taken down from the cross, and is placed in the arms of his mother. In many places, the custom still obtains of chanting a strophe of the hymn Stabat Mater when moving from one station to the next. This, however, pertains to the realm of popular piety rather than to the sphere of liturgy. It is significant that the Missale Romanum of 2002 offers no common masses of the Blessed Virgin during Lent, whereas it does for Advent, Christmas, Easter, and throughout the year, or the, the days per annum. Catholics privileged to find themselves in Rome itself during Lent and the Easter octave may wish to avail themselves of the opportunity to participate in the liturgy as celebrated in the Stational Churches, during the early Middle Ages, the Pope and his court would celebrate the Eucharist at specific churches 
designated according to their place in the seven regions or districts of the city. In the pontificate of blessed Pope John XXIII, who reigned from 1958 to 1963, the Diocese of Rome revived the custom of observing the stational churches during Lent and the octave of Easter. The original Pilgrim's Handbook, issued for those participating in the Roman stations, contains a visit to the Blessed Sacrament and another to Our Lady, preceded by this notice. And I quote, The booklet contains the visit to the Most Blessed Sacrament and to the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that the first act of anyone visiting the Church is directed to the Divine Redeemer in the Holy Eucharist and to His Mother. Then follow the litanies of the saints with the stational prayers. Citing the Pio Benedictine Code of Canon Law, issued in 1917, the compiler of the booklet, Placido Lugano, explains the continuity of the revived stations. I quote, The modern discipline is but the continuation of the ancient. It is a good and useful thing to invoke in supplication the servants of God, reigning together with Christ, and to venerate their relics and images. But before everything else, let all the faithful honor with filial devotion the Most Blessed Virgin. And the stational visit brings the tribute of honor and the incense of filial love to the Mother of God in the golden basilicas of her glorification and the aroma of veneration to the relics of the martyrs and saints who give increased and lasting value to our Roman churches. The Easter season, which begins with the celebration of Christ's resurrection from the dead, concludes with the Feast of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and the early disciples in the cenacle or upper room where the Last Supper had been celebrated before the Lord's Passion. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended as the paraclete, the consoler of the faithful Christians and apostles. The event of Pentecost underscores Mary's relationship to the Church as model and mother, for the Acts of the Apostles records that the Apostles, with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Christian art frequently depicts Mary in the very midst of the Apostles, recalling the figure of the woman of Revelation 12, who is surrounded by 12 stars. Early Christian writers identified this mysterious woman as the church, bringing to birth the ecclesial body of Christ. Since the 5th century, Christian authors have identified the, this woman with Mary, mother and model of the Christian faithful. After Pentecost, the apostles go forth to bear witness to the Paschal mystery. Accordingly, those who have received the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of confirmation go forth to testify to the truth of the gospel. For this apostolic task, they plead with the Blessed Virgin, Mother of the Church, to help them by her prayers. The liturgical seasons revolve around the chief feasts of the liturgical year. Such feasts celebrate, for the most part, events in the history of salvation. The Annunciation, the birth of Christ, his Epiphany, his presentation in the temple. The observances and feasts of the Lent-Easter-Pentecost cycle likewise mark events. The death of Christ on the cross, together with his burial, his resurrection from the dead.
his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the sending of the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost. All these are events celebrated by the church and which are renewed sacramentally for the faithful in every age. But there are several feasts, admittedly later feasts, which celebrate mysteries rather than events. Trinity Sunday, for example, introduced into the Roman Church by Pope John XXII in 1334, afforded neophyte priests ordained on the Saturday following Pentecost the occasion to offer their first Mass in honor of the Most Holy Trinity. Given the Trinitarian thrust of the sacred liturgy, this seems like an altogether worthy and appropriate custom. This is an example of how devotion and piety have brought their influence to bear on the sacred liturgy. Another feast which highlights a mystery rather than an event is Corpus Christi, the body and blood of Christ, which occurs on the Thursday or the Sunday after, the, after Trinity Sunday. This feast, celebrated since the 13th century, marks with high solemnity the mystery of the Lord's body and blood in the Holy Eucharist. The feast is observed in many places with processions in which the Eucharistic body of Christ is carried in a vessel known as a monstrance, exposed to the devotion of the faithful and accorded the worship due the Son of God. Yet another feast marking a mystery rather than an event is the Sacred Heart of Jesus, approved for specific dioceses since 1765 and extended to the whole church in 1856. In celebrating the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus on the Friday following the Sunday after Corpus Christi, the church meditates on the love of God manifested in Christ Jesus, who took upon himself our human nature and from whose heart, pierced on the cross, flowed the water of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist. Hence, the sacramental life of the church finds its source in the very heart of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The liturgical year unfolds for the church the mysteries of Jesus Christ. Because Mary played an, inti an intimate part in these mysteries of her son, the church commemorates her with admiration and devotion. The liturgy extols the privileges and prerogatives that belong to Mary in view of her role as the mother of the Son of God. Mary always leads the faithful to a greater knowledge and a deeper appreciation of her Son. Of Mary, St. Louis de Montfort says, there never can be enough, since she brings us to ever deeper levels of Christ. Every morning, at lauds or morning praises, the church recites the canticle of Zechariah, who heralded Christ as the dawn from on high that breaks upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Each evening, the church in her prayer echoes Mary's canticle of praise, the Magnificat, hoping at last to enjoy the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to all his descendants. In her night prayer, the church sings the canticle of the holy man Simeon, mentioned in Luke 2, 26-35. Here, the church praises God for making known his salvation, which he prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of his people Israel. In this spirit of joyful anticipation, 
of being reunited with her spouse and Lord for all eternity, the Church continues on earth to celebrate the Paschal Mystery. Eucharistic communion with Jesus Christ ought to urge members of the Church on earth to gaze upon the face of Christ with deeper comprehension and increasing love, that on the last day that they may at last enjoy perfect union with Him and the Father in the Holy Spirit forever. It is now time to consider the aim of the liturgy. From what has already been said, it is clear that the liturgy contains within itself and expresses the truths which God has revealed for our continued growth in holiness and ultimately for our salvation. Nevertheless, the liturgy is not primarily a didactic tool, a device to be used exclusively for teaching. Good teachers will elucidate for the baptized the deep meaning of the mysteries that the Church celebrates in her annual, weekly, and daily rounds. We call this post-baptismal catechesis mystagogy. But the liturgy surpasses any attempt to analyze it or to meditate upon it. It is, after all, as the Second Vatican Council clearly teaches, an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. It involves the presentation of man's sanctification under the guise of signs perceptible by the senses and its accomplishment in ways appropriate to each of these signs. Water for baptism, oil for confirmation, bread and wine for the Eucharist, and so forth. The principal aim of the sacred liturgy is the glory of God. As long as this is kept in mind, the Church will offer the sacrifice of praise worthily and well. The liturgy, then, will not be diverted to other purposes, whether as a teaching tool or worse, some, as some form of religious entertainment or the celebration of the community itself. When Christians gather for liturgy, they do well to keep fixed well in their minds and hearts that the object of the liturgy is God, to whom is owed all glory and honor. It is then, that the it is then and only then that the benefits of the sacred liturgy to us will become fully realized. The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, in section 8, describes the transcendent glory of the sacred liturgy and urges us to consider its sublime dignity. In the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, minister of the holies and of the true tabernacle. With all the warriors of, heaven, of the heavenly army, we sing a hymn to the glory of the Lord. Venerating the memory of the saints, we hope for some part and fellowship with them. We eagerly await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, until he, our life, shall appear, and we too will appear with him in glory. This affords all of us, priests and lay members of the faithful alike, an occasion to examine our consciences and to ask whether this truth, proclaimed with such eloquence by the Fathers of Vatican II, finds adequate expression in our celebration of the sacred mysteries. Is it obvious to the faithful gathered in church on Sunday that they are taking part 
in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem. Do they glimpse in our liturgy on earth something of the majesty and glory of God? That ought to be the great, the great goal of everyone responsible for and involved in the sacred liturgy. This is why attempts to use the liturgy as a stage or a bully pulpit or a forum for the celebration of oneself or the community are altogether at odds with the spirit of the liturgy. Bishop Sheen once remarked that the only jokes appropriate within the liturgy are those that could be told on Mount Calvary at the foot of the cross. Secularizing elements introduced into the liturgy, like the greeting, good morning, or the banal remark, have a nice day, risk trivializing the liturgy and detracting from its real purpose, which is the glorification of God and the sanctification of his people. Let us consider now the importance of the liturgy. The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy makes clear the paramount importance of the liturgy for the life of the Church and for the sanctification of individual members of the faithful. Having explained the nature of the Sacred Liturgy, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy concludes, From this it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the Church, is a sacred action surpassing all others, no other action of the Church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. Paraliturgical prayers, like the Rosary and the Stations of the Cross, are certainly worthy expressions of devotion and are effective ways of meditating on the mysteries of Christ. They cannot lay claim, however, to derive their value from so close a relation to the action of Christ as the Sacred Liturgy itself nor can they claim objectively to procure such rich fruits as the liturgical action of Christ in the liturgy. This is by no means to discourage private prayer, meditation, or the various forms of devotion that have marked Christian piety from her earliest years. The sacred liturgy, as the Constitution remarks, does not altogether exhaust the entire activity of the Church. Faith and conversion can be aided greatly by extra-liturgical devotions and forms of prayer. Vatican II, far from condemning devotions, warmly encourages them, clarifying, though, that they ought to derive from and lead to a deeper participation in the sacred liturgy. In section 13, the sacred constitution, or rather the constitution on the sacred liturgy states, that popular devotions of the Christian people, provided they conform to the laws and norms of the Church, are to be highly recommended, especially where they are ordered by the Apostolic See. But such devotions should be so drawn up that they harmonize with the liturgical seasons, accord with the sacred liturgy, are in some way derived from it, and lead the people to it since, in fact, the liturgy by its very nature is far superior to any of them. Nevertheless, as the Council teaches, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the Church is directed. It is also the fount from which all her power flows. For the goal of apostolic endeavor is that all who are made sons and daughters of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of His Church to take part in the sacrifice, and to eat the Lord's Supper. 
In the same vein, the Fathers of Vatican II encouraged the full, conscious, and active participation of the faithful in the sacred liturgy. This entails approaching the sacred mysteries well disposed and prepared for a fruitful participation in Mass. Regular confession and the remote preparation of an active prayer life, a life of charity, are excellent aids to such full, conscious, and active participation in the sacred liturgy. There is an old adage that goes, you only get out of something what you put into it. This adage does not apply to the sacred liturgy, for the Christian faithful derive from the liturgy much more than they ever could hope to put into it. The saving mysteries of the Lord's passion, death, resurrection, and glorification have won for us the rewards of eternal life. With gratitude in our hearts, we do well to approach these mysteries worthily and with the humility of the publican who prayed in his heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let us now conclude with a prayer. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God, despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us from all dangers, O ever-glorious and blessed Virgin. Our Lady, Queen of all saints, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.